Hello and welcome to Feckin' Metal episode 29. I am your host Fergal Trainer. This is Ark Sabbath episode 3.0. Just go with it. Don't ask too many questions. It's grand. It's alright you might say. It's alright. But it's not alright. Or it wasn't alright. In 1979 for Black Sabbath as we learned on last week's episode. Episode 2.5 of Ark Sabbath. Black Sabbath were without a singer. Ozzy Osbourne had been fired. After leaving in 1977, he was fired in 1979. I brought everybody up to speed with my passages that I read out from three different books. Uh, that was Symptom of the Universe by Mick Wall, I Am Ozzy by Ozzy Osbourne, and Iron Man, My Journey Through Heaven and Hell with Black Sabbath and the Lost Children of the Sea Graves by Tony Iommi. Now, uh, just a bit of housekeeping. I've forgotten to do this the last few times, but if you somehow have discovered this podcast other than on Twitter, which is where I am mostly, uh, and you'd like to contact me on Twitter, I'm at Feckin' Metal Cast. Uh, on Facebook, it's at Feckin' Check-In, which is the parent podcast network that this podcast is a part of. You'll see other podcasts up there as well. You'll see a recent one, Feckin' Animals, from my co-host Toomey, who does the the Mothership podcast, the Feckin' Check-In with me. Um, but you'll also see all the episodes of Feckin' Metal in that feed. Um, so if you're confused, if you're a recent listener, yes, it's part of a podcast network, and there are other podcasts in there as well, uh, but you'll find all the episodes of Feckin' Metal in there too at the Feckin' Check-In Podcast Network. So, at Feckin' Metalcast on Twitter, uh, at Feckin' Check-In on Facebook, and Metal at gmail.com if you'd like to contact me. Now, um... So, uh, I did do a bit of reading last week, and uh, we covered off the period that covered... We covered off the period that covered Technical Ecstasy. It doesn't really get any easier to say that name. And Never Say Die, the final two studio albums released uh, during the original Ozzy Osbourne era in Black Sabbath. And now here we are, we're in 1979, but I just would like to reference, like, I know those albums got a bit of stick, a um, bit of criticism from some of my guests last week, and in general they do, although some people actually really like them as well, but um, there was a lot of great music released during that time, and don't let it ever be said that Black Sabbath still couldn't write a decent song, even during those dying days of the original Aussie era where they were out of their minds on cocaine and alcohol and whatever, um, you heard It's All Right there in the intro uh, i finished out with a guns and roses cover version of that from the live era album uh, last week and i decided to open with the original this week and maybe if you were listening to those two episodes in a row you got a nice little segue from one to the other like it's some kind of pink floyd album in the 70s or something um but also like one of my favorite iomi riffs of all time which i've said many times is the song dirty women and i feel that i should just play a bit of that here because it's such an excellent song that maybe gets lost in an album that's not so fondly remembered Okay, that was Dirty Women. Um, during that time, 76 to 78, Black Sabbath also became quite experimental. I mean, I think It's All Right could have 
happily sat on the album Abbey Road by the Beatles. Um, it was that kind of melodic and what well, Bill Ward singing it kind of reminded me of, of the, the sound of the Beatles, to be honest with you. Um, so they were doing a lot of experimental stuff. It wasn't just these heavy crunching riffs like Children of the Grave or whatever. It was uh, much more melody to be found in the songs, I think, in a lot of cases. And um, they were definitely trying to write songs that were catchier i think anyway um but then they had the really really experimental stuff like air dance so here's a clip of that Finally, just to sum up this period from those two albums, uh, a, a, a song that's quite fondly remembered by a lot of people uh, in its junior's eyes. So one that had been around since the Dave Walker era that happened to make it on to uh, Never Say Die. Yeah. So there we go. Those for me are some of the highlights and just songs of note from that period of time. It was only two albums I covered last week. And this week I intend to cover the albums Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules, and the album that split up the original Ronnie James Dio era of Black Sabbath, which was the live album Live Evil. And we'll get deep into all of those three albums because everybody I spoke to had opinions on Heaven and Hell, Mob Rules, and Live Evil or at least had opinions on the Ronnie James Dio era or Ronnie James Dio as a singer. Um, whereas in previous eras of the band, not everybody I spoke with for this series had opinions on those albums or those songs or that period of the band. So this episode is going to be quite a bit longer and I'd like to include almost everything that I recorded about this era because it's all really good quality stuff for most of 90, 90% of it is anyway. Um, so it'll be a lengthier episode this time, but I think it's all worthwhile and it makes for a very interesting listen. So I feel like I should introduce again the participants in the arc. Maybe you joined this halfway through the series and you don't know who everybody is. So I will introduce them as they speak as well for the first time, but we have Alejandra, Black Sabbath fan from Costa Rica, living in Italy, and she's more of a fan of the Ronnie James Dio era. We have Joe Sigler from the US, who has a Black Sabbath website called black-sabbath.com, and he's been running that since 1995. Uh, We have Rye of the podcast, Sabbath Bloody Podcast, Canadian, did live in Ireland for a few years back in Canada now, and he has dedicated an entire episode of his podcast to each individual Black Sabbath album, right from the 
original Aussie era up to uh, the album 13. I think he might have done The Devil You Know as well. Uh, and then he, he went on to produce episodes on Ozzy Osbourne year by year uh, going up to 1999. Highly recommend the podcast. Uh, then we have Uncle Steve of Uncle Steve's Iron Maiden Zone, the Texan Iron Maiden connection. His podcast is very well established at this point. He's spoken to a load of different Iron Maiden fans over the last year or so. And also many uh, people who were in Iron Maiden or have a lot to do with Iron Maiden, like uh, Dennis Stratton and Blaze Bailey and things like that. So I recommend that as well. Then we have Melissa from Boston from the Metal Chat with Melissa podcast, another really good podcast as well, which I am a dedicated listener of. And Melissa speaks to fans, musicians, uh, her own friends, and sometimes just gives her opinions on albums or does reviews um, and has lots of really interesting guests. Uh, recently, she spoke to Martin Popoff. That was a really good one if you want to go and listen to that. And then uh, finally, last but not least, we have uh, Philip from uh, Switzerland who lives in uh, the US and he is a fan of Black Sabbath. He got into the band in 1992 when he first heard TV crimes from Dehumanizer but has listened to all eras and uh, mainly I spoke to him about the Ronnie James Dio era so he had a lot to say about that. So that's everybody. Uh, just so you get to know their voices again I'll introduce them as they speak and just before we get into the actual interviews where I'll let my guests pick up the story I just want to read a brief passage from Mick Wall's book Symptom of the Universe where he outlines the transition from the Ozzy Osbourne era into the Ronnie James Dio era. So the story picks up with Don Arden, who is the manager of Black Sabbath at this time. Uh, Don Arden, father of Sharon Arden, who later became Sharon Osbourne, for those who might not know. Don was outraged, seeing Ozzy's sacking as coming at the worst possible time for the band. Already struggling to convince the industry that Sabbath was far from a spent force commercially, this sent out decidedly the wrong signal. But Tony was adamant. Either Ozzy went or he did. And even Don wasn't arrogant enough to believe he could rebuild Black Sabbath without its chief songwriter. What he was convinced of, though, was that if Ozzy really was to be ousted, there was still a career for him to be had as a solo artist. As such, and as part of the singer's parachute out of Sabbath, he was signed, for a modest advance which essentially just covered his day-to-day living costs, to Jet Records. Always one to find a silver lining in any financial cloud, Don reasoned that the breakup might even be a good thing if it left him managing two potentially successful rock acts. All would depend on who exactly Sabbath got to replace Ozzy. It would not be easy, Don knew, but he could already think of several possible replacements that might do the job. Before he could even discuss them with the band, however, Tony had already made his mind up. A fucking midget? Don was still crying with scorn when we discussed it over 20 years later. A fucking midget? That's who they wanted, I told him. You can't have a fucking midget fronting Black Sabbath. You'll be a laughing stock. But that's what they wanted. So I fucked them off, I thought. I'm too old, I'm too successful, I'm too fucking smart for this shit. And that was it. The midget in question was in fact one of the most totemic singers in rock in the late 70s. Someone short in height but tall in stature, already with a voice like a lion roaring and a driving ambition and songwriting talent that would achieve what had seemed all but impossible that long, hot, cocaine-confused summer of 1979 and actually bring Black Sabbath back bigger and better than before. His name was Ronnie James Dio and he meant business whether Tony, Geezer and Bill liked it or not. Okay, so that's Mick's take on the transition from Aussie to Dio. Very interesting time, exciting times ahead, and I'm going to let my guests pick it up from here. Sorry, I should also note, during this time, uh, Jeff Nichols ends up playing bass and rhythm guitar at various points when Geezer Butler leaves, uh, and to assist Tony Iommi on some of the rhythm tracks for Heaven and Hell. And Craig Gruber, formerly of Rainbow, also ends up playing bass in the band as well. And Jeff Nichols switches to keyboards, a role that he would occupy um, for a long period of time after that. Now, 
that's really for the deep divers so i'll suggest you go and listen to sabbath bloody podcast by Roy, or you go and read uh, joe sigler's excellent um timeline page on his website black-sabbath.com for all the details on that let's start with philip and he talks about the upheaval that ronnie james dio joining black sabbath brought to the band this was the huge upheaval moment in their career, really, where just so many things happened in a short span, for better or worse, or if at all, it's up to up to the listener to decide. I mean, the change from the Aussie era to the Dio era is massive. Black Sabbath went from, you know, they left behind their most of their like heavy riff-based doom style they're the psychedelic influences that came that started with sabbath bloody sabbath the proggy stuff that kind of disappeared and when ronnie james dio joined they became a heavy metal band in the absolute truest sense of the word i mean if you listen to heaven and hell it's a heavy metal album you have a singer that can go anywhere he wants to you have a band that realized oh wow now we can just we can do anything we want. I mean, Ozzy had his limitations. As brilliant as he was for what he did, he had his very, he worked within a very strict framework. With with Ronnie, they could go anywhere they wanted. And he brought his interests, he brought his, the subject matters he would write about in Rainbow. This was a new world and they just rolled with it. And they created some two of the very best albums in the metal canon, in my opinion. I mean, I play them all the time and there's barely a dud on there. I said earlier that Sabbath basically uh, was the big bang of heavy metal, but these early albums with Ozzy, they will appeal to fans of rock, of you know, classic rock, what they called classic rock today, hard rock, any, whereas with Heaven and Hell, there was a clear cut, there was, if you listen to this, there are people who like the early stuff who will not like this. And that's why, you know, I, I'm guilty of saying that people who only like Aussie Sabbath and don't like Dio Sabbath, you know, what's wrong with them? But it is a different style of music. And, you know, you have to admit that it is possible for someone to not be into the more, you know, the faster riffs, the more epic, the, the, the stories in the lyrics. The lyrics change drastically because... Whereas on the early albums, Geezer Butler wrote most of them, or all of them, almost. Um, here you had a, a singer who was full of words, and he wrote his own lyrics, and he presented new stories and, and took Black Sabbath in a completely different direction, also lyrically. And uh, I think that, that, that also is part of that big change that happened. And that, that could be something that some people would not be into, could not follow, be like, well, he's talking about, you know, I don't know the 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 heaven and hell and 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 the late lady evil children of the sea the sign of the southern cross what's all this about you know it's going on and on I, I can't relate it's not you know children of the grave or war pigs which were you know a lot of political content in the early sabbath albums that people could relate to that now are like well this sounds like some fantasy epic you know more mystical things and that appealed to a whole new i think fan base i asked alejandra if dio's fantasy-based lyrics detracted from her enjoyment of the music no not at all if if anything it's it's one of the 
of the appeals <laughs> of Dio to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in all of that uh, medieval fantasy that, that Dio was uh, so obviously interested in himself. And so, um, no, it doesn't bother me at all. Although I have to say that it's unfair also just to, to let's say, put him in that box, right? Like he would only write about those themes. Well, he, he didn't, you know. Uh, there were other things that he wrote about. And, and yeah, maybe those were predominant uh, uh, themes in his songs and in many of his solo albums as well. But um, but yeah, I don't think he was only about that. Just to give some context to Heaven and Hell, uh, I mentioned earlier that obviously Geezer Butler left temporarily before the recording of the album Heaven and Hell. And Roy goes into that a small bit, so I just thought I'd include that clip here. Uh, I don't know how much you're going to get into the history of like the recording process and stuff like that. But I know Geezer wasn't involved with Heaven and Hell from the very beginning. Like they kind of had a bit of a falling out where Savage just kind of dispersed. And when they brought Dio back in, they were kind of forced into bringing it back into a Sabbath thing. But, the, you know, uh, Bill was kind of on the fence in and out. And uh, a lot of the stuff was done. I only did with uh, Jeff Nichols, who's the unsung hero of uh, this era forward of Black Sabbath. Uh, He's very much behind the curtain kind of guy. But like I said, with Tech X, like that's kind of the process that Iomi got into was uh, working with a keyboard player. And, and in Jeff Nichols' uh, instance, he was a multi-instrumentation. So he did bass tracks and stuff like that. And I think they had some other lads come in and out. And yeah, the songwriting process of that, they, they, they worked the shit out of these tracks. And I, I feel like I hear that a little bit in Heaven and Hell, personally. I know a lot of people think it's sonically, it's one of the greatest albums of all time. And I get that too, because it is very polished. It is very driving. Um, and the performances are undeniable. Um, and actually talking about Neon Knights, that was one that they recorded kind of after the whole session. So that's one of the few ones where Geezer's flavor is 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 in it. And I think you can feel it, um, the growl, the tone, because the rest of it, he was kind of redoing other bass players' parts, you know? So it feels a little punched in. Um, that's my hang up with heaven and hell. That being said, Dio era is fucking my jam now. I love it. I got uh, Dio de-virginized. <laughs> and I, now, I, now, I, now I read from the Bible black. Absolutely. <laughs> Uncle Steve isn't the world's biggest fan of Ronnie James Dio as a vocalist, but he did give him a chance. Like, okay, case in point. I don't like Ronnie Dio. And I listened to this podcast it's been years back but they were covering uh okay so they were covering heaven and hell and you know i'm not a dio guy but i these guys were so passionate about how great that album was and how much they loved it and i was just like and and in my mind i don't know about this is what i do i go and i also did this with a cheap trick album so this tells you how gullible i am because i hate cheap trick um and so they did this uh, you know, uh, heaven and hell album. And I'm going, if they're going to, if they like it that much and they're going on about it that much, there's gotta be something there. I've got to listen to this album and at least give it one go around. And I remember listening to it. And for, for what I can remember, I think I liked two songs off of it that I thought like children of the sea was one of them. Cause I remember hearing that and thinking that was a really good song. Um, I, can't remember because i don't know what else is on i mean the song heaven and hell I, i've heard of that you know i've heard that one before because that's the one that that's kind of like the song that gets talked about from that album or played or and, and and i'm and i'm trying to be diplomatic and not sit here and say anything about dio because like i said i don't think he's a 
he's not a, I mean, he's obviously not a bad singer. I mean, if he, you can't be, well, I guess, I guess there's people that have proven that you can be a horrible singer. A lot of people can love you, but. Uh, All right. So enough dilly dallying. Let's get into the meat of this episode. We're going to start talking about the songs on Heaven and Hell, starting, of course, with the blistering opening track, Neon Nights. This is the first time people heard Ronnie James Dio with Black Sabbath. And what better song to open that up? It's, it's, it's fast. It's not too fast. It's not mid-paced. It's somewhere in between. And you immediately remember it. And the chorus, you know, the title, Neon Nights. What's a neon night? Who knows? But it sticks with you. You know, you don't, you don't, you're like, whoa, that was amazing. And Ronnie's vocals are just, they're all over the place. They're, they're just wow. And a lot of memorable things in there, you know, protectors of the realm. I mean, that's something as a metalhead, you'll, you'll never forget. You, you hear that and you're like, protectors of the realm. His, I mean, it's a statement. It's an opening track. Like they couldn't have done better. They couldn't have chosen better. The sequencing on that album is, is excellent. There's not another track that could have opened the album the way Neon Knights did. Heaven and Hell, okay, the vocals are much better. The song structure is better. It is more melodic. It seems like they're energized. They're in a new direction. And yet, to me, it did. It sounded different, but it still sounded like Sabbath to me. It sounded more like Sabbath to me than Technical Ecstasy did. Yeah, I love, uh, I love Neon Nights, of course, the, the intro. Uh, and um, yeah, as I've been documenting myself on, on more details <laughs> about the um, about the, the album and how it came to to be, I know that this was the last song that they recorded um, from from this uh, from this album. I love it; it's a great opener. I think the, I like the fast pace, the the energy. Um, it's quite a short one, actually, right? Like three minutes fifty one. I mean, it, it ends uh, quite soon. But, but I love it. I asked Alejandra if she felt that Ronnie James Dio fundamentally changed the sound of Black Sabbath when he started singing with the band in 1979. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. They were doing things that were more, yeah, a lot slower again, a lot more atmospheric. And yeah, no, I um, I think when Dio came into the band at this point, I mean, he, he completely transformed it. I think he has that, I don't know, that that talent maybe of uh, uh, of uh, being such an influence, and because he was the one who wrote uh, all the lyrics, you know, uh, in the in the album, uh, he also gave uh, it. You know, did you ever think that you were gonna hear the words dragons or rainbow in a in a Black Sabbath song? <laughs> I don't think so. As my chat with Philip moved on, I brought up to him the fact that Children of the Sea is often mentioned as having predated Ronnie James Dio joining the band, and that there is allegedly a version out there with Ozzy Osbourne singing vocals over it. I asked Philip his thoughts on this. I would love to hear that version. But, uh, you know, I'm sure this is a point of contention. This was a completely different band. I don't think Dio would want this version released on a whatever kind of box that they could have come up with. Maybe. But maybe not. Um, at this point, since he's not around anymore, maybe we will hear it at some point. Uh, it would be interesting. But I remember Tony saying that the whole vocal melody is completely different with all these singing. Because, I mean, Ozzy wouldn't sing the song the way uh, Dio would sing it. So it would be a completely different song. But it would be interesting to see what that was. But he got frustrated with the song and, and discarded it. 
uh, only to have it brought back later. But I mean, Children of the Sea is an epic. It is one of the defining songs of the Dio era, in my opinion. It's one of those epic songs that will forever live in the canon of metal, of heavy metal. And um, yeah, I mean, it even inspired Iron Maiden later to do their own similarly title track. Uh, I think uh, Bruce somewhere said, well, there was a Black Sabbath track with a similar name that was very inspiring to our own. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's a fantastic song and it's one of the highlights of the album. And yeah, and, you know, we can't, you know, discredit the, the inclusion of, of Martin Birch in this time. That was huge. Not only is the band different, but the sound is different. From the early from the early material, I have to say I was I was planning to listen to to both Never Say Die and Technical Ecstasy before this, but I didn't I didn't get around to it. Um, so I don't really remember how good or bad they sounded. But the early stuff, some of it's been remixed, some of it's been since been remastered. There are you know muddier and clearer versions, but there was a definite change when the band recorded Heaven and Hell and The Mob Rules. I mean, both of these albums sound really good. As such a big fan of Ronnie James Dio and certainly the more melodic vocal style that he brings to Black Sabbath, I asked Alejandra if Children of the Sea is one of the highlights on Heaven and Hell for her. Absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Um, Again, you know, well, uh, you know, uh, ironically, we have like the, the, the last song that was that was recorded and the first song that was uh, that was written right for the album because because uh, this was a song that was uh, um, that um, Ayomi had already been working on when he invited Dio to come over for a, a rehearsal and, and that was the first time they met and uh, and then they started writing uh, uh, the, the rest of the song together and and according to you they almost finished that that song on on that first uh, session let's say that they that they had together so um so yeah definitely i mean uh, in in uh I, I love the the start of the song you know the way it starts uh slowly the acoustic part with a bit of guitar and bass uh very melodic you know then uh, once it you know once the drums uh, go in then it gets a bit heavier and uh, i really like the 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 uh, sort of uh, vocals that you hear during the solo it's like i mean it's not singing it's just like oh okay like like this it like accompany the whole the whole solo section when i spoke to melissa i asked her what her personal highlights were from the album heaven and hell she mentions the song die young specifically and that's a subject we'll return to later well children of the sea is my probably my favorite Dio era Sabbath song of all time. Um, I, there, everything, I mean, the title track, I mean, even the weaker songs on that album are, you know, are great. I, you know, it's funny. I didn't die young was something that grew on me. Now I love that song, but when I first heard it, it was sort of, eh, it wasn't my favorite on the album, but now, now I really do love that song. Philip shares his thoughts on the song lady evil and how it epitomizes at least lyrically the change in direction Black Sabbath took when Ronnie James Dio came on board. The riff is superb. The riff is killer. It's 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 a little campy. Lady Evil, you're a mystical, magical woman. I mean, there's there's Ronnie, you know, that's it's a change. Those are the new lyrics. You didn't have that, you know, early on. This is not Electric Funeral or Children of the Grave. You know, it's Lady Evil. And um, it, it's a really fun song. I wouldn't say it's a hit, but uh, the riff is just, the riff is great. 
All right, so how about the title track from the album, The Evergreen, Heaven and Hell? I love the changes in pace, how it starts slow, then uh, picks up the pace towards the end. Uh, I love the lyrics, you know, um, and I love the the, the subject uh, matter of the song, right? This is something that, that Dio was also very... Um, you know, a, a lot of times uh, discussed about in, in his interviews, and and uh, which is the the role of religion, right? And uh, and uh, and I think in this song he he meant to write about that. He meant to write about how uh, there's heaven and hell right here on earth, right? And there's good and evil uh, inside of us, uh, and and we have the choice of you know uh, which way to behave. So, I mean, this is the defining song. The it's it's amazing. It's epic. The riff is fantastic. I'm not a huge fan of the live versions. This is one of the songs where they do the, the crowd interactions. The, the song drags on. I prefer the album version because it's, you know, it's concise and it keeps going. It's, it's one of their best riffs on this album. I mean, it's just a killer track. And I think it, it will live forever in, in the metal realm. But um, no, it is, it is the defining track. And I mean, I can play that in the car when I'm driving down the road with my family and everybody loves that song. Right, now back to Die Young. So this is a song that I discussed with many of my guests uh, over the various different interviews that I compiled as part of Ark Sabbath. The reason I don't include my questions in the audio that I include in the episodes is I don't think it's interesting to hear me asking the same questions over and over again. And uh, I don't think it's most digestible format to hear me providing the links and then to hear me asking the questions so i basically asked several of my guests about the lyrics of the song die young because it's something i've always found intriguing myself in that you can hear ronnie james dio screaming die young 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 and it's the type of song where if you're a young heavy metal fan and your parents walked into the room they'd be like what the hell are you listening to and i don't know how you can really explain it. So I wanted to see what my guests um, felt about the lyrics for this particular song, what their take was on it personally. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that I ever analyzed the lyrics of that song. But I mean, you know, Ronnie, that th- this is the other thing about that album um, is that the lyric content is very different. It's sort of mystical and and sort of otherworldly and almost not. I don't say Dungeons and Dragons, but you know, sort of. It's probably an interesting, like, sort of a follow-up to the Rainbow Era stuff that Ronnie did, right? Because he brought his his whole shtick to them. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know about. I, I, I'd have to think about that. I don't really, I don't think I ever analyzed that song. But yeah, it is kind of weird that it's, you know, you're screaming, "Die young, die young." <laughs> it is definitely, possibly. Yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite songs on the album. It's a, it's an epic high point and an already amazing album. You're here at track six. Iomi's guitar is really brilliant here. I'm not sure what to make of the lyrics. You know, it's, it's, it's a tricky one to analyze. I don't know. The lyrics tell you to live for today. You know, tomorrow will never come. You, you know, die young. But I don't know. I, I really don't know what, what, what he was going for here. I just know I love this track, you know, because he wasn't a negative lyricist. He wasn't he wasn't he wasn't cynical. He wasn't into the whole, I don't know, uh, you know, li- he, he wasn't dark and he wasn't live fast, die young. This was not a, a you know, 
take drugs and 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 bang it out. So there, there's definitely a deeper meaning in 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 his words, in a way of this you know fatalistic rock and roll, live fast, die young attitude. Dark, which you know it sounds it sounds fun. It sounds you know the 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 sunset strip metal. Ah, we're gonna go for it. We're just gonna you know burn out fast. Right. Is this is this a song promoting suicide or something? I don't know. I think more it's about it's more about okay, like like the song says, right? Live for today. So maybe it's more about, you know, taking advantage of, of the day or staying young rather than, you know, don't don't get old and don't die being just an old boring person. Just, you know, stay young inside and and die young, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and how about that epic album closer, Lonely is the Word? It's an awesome closer. I like uh, you know how it's a bit more bluesy uh, the keyboards in the in the background or in the solo and all that I mean yeah um, but I would say yeah my definite highlights would be probably the first three Neon Knights um, uh, Children of the Sea and uh, Heaven and Hell I think it's a great closer I kind of tend to forget the song it's kind of it's a bit of an underrated gem but the the, the guitars are what make this song Tony's guitars are really what 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 take this song home. And I, I think it's a great closer, you know. Melissa was the only one of my guests to get to see Black Sabbath on the 1980 Heaven and Hell tour. This is her recollection of that show. The show was amazing, but I couldn't tell you who opened for them because I can't remember. I was trying to think about who opened for them, but I think that we, I don't think we even saw the opening band. I think we partied in the parking lot. So I don't even think we saw the opening band, but I was 14 and I was blown away by just the whole spectacle of it all. And Ronnie James Dio is just, he just has this presence about him, this aura around him, right? Just, there's just something about him that is just so, um, he's such a, I hate to use the word star, but he's such a star. He just, he just, consumes the room right he just he just takes you in it seems so effortlessly he just seems to be so comfortable and just and that that is probably although i love mob rules i think that heaven and hell is probably my favorite of of the ronnie james Dio era i asked my guests what they thought of the iconic heaven and hell album artwork i'll allow alejandra to sum it up obviously it's uh, it's um what do you say it's a provoking uh, image right because i mean you think of of angels as uh as being this uh, heavenly beings and you would never uh, think of angels doing something as transgressive <laughs> as uh, as smoking so i mean it's it's nice yeah i was reading that this is um a painting by an artist called link curly the painting is called smoking angels and i mean it, it was just something i covered that maybe one of them one of them saw, yeah, they liked it and they decided that would be a, a nice cover uh, for the album. I mean, it wasn't like um, especially uh, made for the for the album, but just a, a piece of art that already existed. All right. So halfway through the Heaven and Hell tour, Bill Ward famously left Black Sabbath and was replaced by drummer Vinnie Apice. Ozzy Osbourne would go on to disparagingly refer to this version of Black Sabbath as Geezer and the Three Italians. Uh, and Geezer and the Three Italians managed to release another album in 1981 called Mob Rules. 
I spoke to Roy about this album and how it differed from the album that preceded it, Heaven and Hell. Um, yeah, just overall, they're kind of more comfortable. It feels more off the floor to an extent, which I like, uh, Mob Rules. Uh, Apathy is like, amazing i love him as drummer like i, I like of course i'm gonna everybody's on uh bill ward i mean maybe rules for sure but what apathy brings and the way that he punches riffs as far as the style they go for is amazing and there's a reason why he's always with dio um dio knows that he can make any album in any capacity as long as he's got Vinny back there it's gonna it's gonna drive it's gonna be the right vibe um yeah he's uh so I guess, yeah, that's, that's back to the room section. But yeah, yeah, um, they get doomy too. You know, Dio has doom in them. Uh, it's not all galloping. It's lots of moody shit. Oh, just kidding. My curtain fell down. <laughs> that's Dio. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a rainbow behind me soon. <laughs> I asked Melissa if she had a dog in the fight when it came to the Dio versus Ozzy debate? It's, you know, it, that's such a difficult question because in so many ways, they're like two different bands. Like you can't really compare Heaven and Hell to the first album. I mean, you can, and, but you can't. I mean, I don't know how to explain it. I love Ozzy. I think that Ozzy was the right man for the job at the time. Um, but I really love what he did solo. I think that he went on and did his own solo thing and did did great with that. But you can't compare them vocally. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's kind of like the Paul Diano, Bruce Dickinson thing. I love Paul Diano, but you know that he's not able to do what they went on to do. And it's kind of the same thing. Like, where was, I think the question is, where were they going to go with Ozzy if they had stuck with him? I asked Melissa how she felt about the album Mob Rules. I thought it was, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, um, Sign of the Southern Cross. I mean. Who says no to that song, right? Uh, you know, I, I thought it was, I just, I was just like, yeah, this is, I'm all, I'm all in for this. I'm all in for this. I thought this was, I, I was, you know, it was like, I, I think this is going to be a great partnership. I think this is, this is, this is, this is dynamite, you know, country girl, uh, you know, mob rules. Is there a bad song on that album? I posed the same question to Alejandra. I love it. Yes, I mean, I I, uh, I like uh, a lot of the tracks. I mean, I have a hard time deciding which of the two I like. I like more. I mean, you, you should know that the Humanizer is actually my least favorite of the three uh, the al- uh, albums. But uh, Mob Rules has uh, a song that I absolutely love and it's possibly my my favorite song of the Dio era of Black Sabbath and is the the sign of the Southern Cross. I just uh, absolutely love that that song. Uh, and so well for once it's just the sound of the drums. I mean have you have you paid attention to the way that the drums sound in, in this in this track is just uh in the bass. I don't know. I love that that rhythm section that drives you know uh, the song and uh, um, yeah I mean I love it it's uh, again you know for me it's like pure deal all right sign of the southern cross is a great song but we're jumping ahead here what about that opening track turn up the night turn up the night is another short uh, fast-paced uh, uh, rocker um, and it has some some unusual vocals uh, you know I don't know if you if you remember like the part like right before the first chorus I think it is where, where Dio uh, sings a very high note 
Um, and it's a, it's a kind of an uh, an unusual uh, I don't know uh, for me. I think I don't I haven't heard Dio uh, do that. So let it all go. Something like so let it all go. Okay, you go and listen to it and then and get back to me. Yeah, but I I made a note about that because I, I thought it was um, something that I hadn't heard uh, Dio do before, and and I don't think I've I've heard him do uh, afterwards. So. I think, uh, so, you know, when I listen to Turn Up the Night, I think it's a killer song. It's great. It's fast. It's rocking. Um, but I don't think it quite has the heft that Neon Knights does. I think it's a fantastic song. Um, I, I think it takes a little step back from Neon Knights, but it, it just a tiny bit. Yeah, they're they're very similar songs, I think. Yeah, in in pace and in in melody and and the fact that they're short, snappy rockers, you know. I asked Philip how he felt about the song. Many regard as a highlight of Mob Rules, and that's "Sign of the Southern Cross." Uh, yeah, it's probably the highlight of the album, next to track eight, which we'll get to later. But uh, I think it's it's absolutely an epic track. It's one of the greatest tracks on the album and definitely of the Dio era you know the riff it you have you're getting back the doom metal kind of slowness the the subject matter the epic vocals I mean everyone here is at the top of their game it, it is a brilliant track it, it, it is one of the best uh, you know heavy metal songs of, of, of classic metal and when you now talk about epic metal, you know, in our times, this is definitely something you look back on and look at one of the defining moments. I discussed the track The Mob Rules with Philip and how the song was originally written for the animated film Heavy Metal. It was, and you can find the kind of unmastered version in the Heavy Metal soundtrack, which sounds a little rougher. And as the band thinks, it sounds better than the actual album version. They, create, they, they wrote the song for a soundtrack for the heavy metal film. They delivered it as a demo. The people said, ah, we like it this way. No need to refine this. They had to redo it for the album because the mastering, whatever, the production didn't match the rest of the song, songs they had recorded. So you can get two versions. And uh, I, I think both of them are okay. I Again... I can't really tell a huge difference in these production value processes. So for me, both songs are actually really good. I mentioned to Philip how I felt that the message of that particular song, if you listen to Fools, the Mob Rules, doesn't sound out of place even in modern society. No, it doesn't. And I think it's brilliant. But, you know, when you read some interviews later on, the song was actually foreseen in that movie where you know, the mob came and the mob ruled. So maybe it doesn't translate as well on the album. It's like, well, what's this about? But it was in the, in, in the context of a scene of that movie, that's what it was about. But I think the, the, the song is killer. I mean, the riff is great. It's, it's a superb track. I mentioned to Alejandra how I thought the song Country Girl was a departure lyrically from where Black Sabbath previously would have gone or even Ronnie James Dio would normally go. And she brought up another interesting point about this song. Yeah, it's a different song also in the fact that the voice kind of follows the melody of the, 
the you know the guitar, which is not something very very common. Maybe it's something more common, something that Ozzy would do. You know, like even with the paranoid, like even with the classic songs like Paranoid, like da -da 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 -da, you know, the the guitar uh, sort of melody would be what he was singing basically. It, it's such su it, it, okay. It sounds super campy, but we sailed away on a crimson tide. You you don't really get any more heavy metal than that okay and anytime i think about that riff i think about that song or i hear it that comes to mind and yeah i i do personally think it's a highlight on the album which is an album full of highlights it's campy but then again you know we're heavy metal fans so what is now considered to be campy that's stuff we just like i'm for me ryan james dio could sing about rubber ducks if he wanted to and i would get goosebumps you know that's just thinking about him as this amazing amazing vocalist and singer so with ronnie i feel like he could just have one line in there that was amazing and it will save the song you know so sail away on a crimson tide that'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck the rest of the song could be about rubber ducks or you know irrelevant stuff earlier in our chat philip referred to track eight which is of course falling off the edge of the world here are his thoughts i think it's one of the absolutely greatest heavy metal songs ever written i mean I, i'm not being annoying uh this is this is absolutely fantastic it's the winner on the album it's the showstopper it's epic the riff is amazing. Dio's vocals are amazing. If you don't like this song, you don't like heavy, epic heavy metal. But I mean, could you imagine Ozzy singing this song, putting any vocals to this song? It, it, it would be impossible. So this could only have happened for the band to, to, to take the change they did to move on into a completely you know, new formation. The song that closes the album Mob Rules is one of the most loved songs from the Dio era. It's called Over and Over. So for me, I wonder, I'm always kind of conflicted whether Falling Off the Edge of the World would have made the better closer versus Over and Over. It's kind of a bit with, you know, Judas Priest and the Realms of Death. It's hard, but it, it does have that real closing album quality. I think Dio sounds kind of pleading in the song. It's a slow, like, dirgy track. I think it's great. Okay, so now we are nearing the end of this incarnation of the Ronnie James Dio-fronted version of Black Sabbath. The next album to be released by this version of the band featuring Ronnie James Dio, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler and Vinnie Appice was the live album Live Evil. And this is the album that destroyed everything, at least until 1992. The album featured a number of Ozzy Osbourne songs and a number of Ronnie James Dio songs. But what always bothered me as a fan was that the album didn't feature any Ozzy songs that went beyond Master of Reality in 1971. I brought this up to Joe Sigler briefly and he gave his thoughts on this matter. No, Tony Martin did, but um, that was that was played on the cross-purposes tour. But no, you know, now that you mention that, I'm not sure if I ever, I mean, I obviously would have noticed that, but I don't think I've ever given any thought to it. I think it was more... I think it was more, they probably would have preferred to not play any of them if they could get away with that. But it, it, it was being billed as Black Sabbath. So to some extent, you have to play Iron Man, Paranoid, War Pigs. Um, 
So they're not going to play dirty women and they're not going to play, you know, they're not going to play <laughs> air dance. You know, <laughs> I, I, I asked Geezer that once. I, I asked if they ever considered playing air dance live. And he goes, no, not really. And I said, I said, I would actually pay money to see you try and play air dance live. And he was said, bloody hell, we'd have to learn how to play that I don't know if it was ever constructed with a consideration of how to play it live. We've all probably heard the stories around the recording of the album Live Evil. Uh, so obviously it was recorded on tour, but when they went back to mix it in the studio, there were all sorts of accusations flying left and right. So the band was kind of split down the middle at this point. Ronnie James Dio and Vinnie Apice were in one camp, and Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler, the original members of the band, were in another camp. Accusations flew back and forth about Dio sneaking into the studio to hire up his vocal parts when Geezer and Tony weren't around. And then when Dio wasn't around, allegedly, Tony and Geezer were sneaking in to hire up the guitar and the bass parts. Uh, It's a story that doesn't really have any resolution to it because it's one side versus the other. And unfortunately, Ronnie James Dio has died. So we'll never get to the bottom of it. But uh, that's basically the situation that split up the band. It was an argument, a falling out, but also really a power struggle between the two camps. And if there's going to be a power struggle between original core members of the band and people who've only joined recently, it's a foregone conclusion as to who's going to win that power struggle. Um, so here's Rai's take on all of that. I mentioned that, uh, you know, the stories about Iomi and Geezer sneaking into the studio conflicted with those of Ronnie James Dio sneaking into the studio. Did anyone sneak into the studio? I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I think they were just different cats as far as their process. Um, and that created some tension just because I've heard things about like a certain engineer was was stirring the pot some. Um, I've heard that from many times. Uh, but all in all, I mean, maybe it's just too much ego in one band and it's going to blow up at some point. Um, I recently did a kind of retrospect on the live stuff. I don't know if you listened to the Sabbath seance thing that I'm doing, but it was interesting to kind of dive back into that and, and uh, look at it. Knowing all the history behind it, I never really listened to it as like a live album itself, but I, I can hear the mix is not uh, not up to snuff with some of the other Dio era stuff that was recorded. I asked Roy if he thought it felt strange hearing Dio sing songs that were so closely associated with Ozzy Osbourne, such as Paranoid and War Pigs. Yeah, Paranoid is pretty much an Aussie signature track too, if you think about it as far as the, the vocal kind of melody is kind of the cool driving part of it. it otherwise, it's kind of a straightforward jam. Um, but also with War Pigs, like Dio puts some some flair on that one. I like I like what he does in that. He was actually kind of, I was dissecting this when I was going through with the stuff, but like, I think he's the first one that does like, you know, when he sings along with the guitar riff at the end. Da, 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 and it, I think Ozzy was the first one, or um, Dio was the first one to get that going with the crowd and stuff. And Ozzy, of course, caught that. Uh, when you see him live, that's all he does. Let me hear you. Uh, and then he like, go fucking crazy. Now. Yeah. I miss Ozzy. <laughs> I want to see him live so bad. I, I lost two chances. I had a ticket to see him at uh, in Dublin and then kept rolling over. And then I, when I arrived back in Canada, I picked up once the one in Montreal and canceled. I think the engineer who was working on the Live Evil album was drinking heavily. And uh, he would tell Tony and Geezer, oh, uh, Ronnie came in and he was changing all this and he didn't like what you did. And when Ronnie came in, he said, oh, Tony and Geezer didn't like what you did. So he was pitting, you know, the different parties against each other. But I think Vinnie Apice is a 
he, he was an excellent drummer. Alejandra informed me that the Dio albums had been in heavy rotation in the run-up to recording this podcast interview. I asked her was she also listening to Live Evil. Knowing her distaste for the Aussie era, I was interested to learn whether or not she enjoyed listening to Dio interpret those Ozzy Osbourne songs from Black Sabbath. I did, yes. <laughs> um, since I was... Uh... You know that I wasn't that interested in 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 hearing early Sabbath stuff, but I was curious to hear, you know, uh, those um, famous uh, early songs, possibly sung by uh, a different singer. Um, and I was curious to 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 know whether uh, uh, Dio had done that. Uh, so I I went and and, and looked for that uh, live album. Um, I liked it. Yeah, of course. I think. Uh, Dio does great in when he's singing his uh, his own material, you know, that he's done with the band. He he has a, I think he does a pretty decent job of, of singing some of the Sabbath uh, classics as well, Paranoid, Iron Man, um, what else they sing, War Pigs, uh, NIB. Yeah, except I would say except for for Black Sabbath, the the song, <laughs> which he completely butchers. But I mean, who can blame him? Who who can sing that anyway? Alright, so that covers all of the albums Ronnie James Dio recorded with Black Sabbath in his original run as the vocalist of the band from 1979 to 1982. Unfortunately, it did end acrimoniously in 1982, but the band would get back together for 1992's Dehumanizer, and that's coming on a later episode of Arc Sabbath. But, um, as I record this, it is the 16th of May 2021, it's exactly half eleven in the evening or at night um, and I started recording this on Thursday the 13th of May and had to uh, temporarily put it on hold for a couple of days so I wasn't really aware of the fact that it was going to be the anniversary of Ronnie James Dio's death that has only come to light today and yesterday when I've been perusing Twitter and I realised that it was the 11th anniversary of Ronnie James Dio's death so as I was recording these interviews several weeks ago with my uh, guests I did ask people what their thoughts were on the passing of Ronnie James Dio, as I knew he was somebody that many of my guests were quite a big fan of, so I wanted to know what their thoughts were um, at the time when he passed away. Um, we all knew he was sick at the time, but even with that, it kind of seemed quite sudden because it appeared he had recovered from his stomach cancer and they were booking gigs. That personally, myself, I was supposed to see the band Heaven and Hell support Iron Maiden in the O2 in Dublin in 2010. And to me, that was a dream lineup, a, a dream gig. Basically, seeing the Ronnie James Dio version of Black Sabbath supporting Iron Maiden, it's something that I never could have conceived of happening. And I was looking forward to it probably more than any concert I'd ever attended in my entire life. At this point, I'd just like to say how much the music of Ronnie James Dio has meant to me. When I first heard Black Sabbath, I uh, listened to a double CD album called The Best of Black Sabbath. It was released in 2000, a Sanctuary music release. And there were only two songs from the Ronnie James Dio era of Black Sabbath on it. It had Heaven and Hell and Turn Up the Night. Those songs jumped out at me more so than any of the Ozzy Osbourne era songs on that album. And I was much more of a fan of the sound of Ronnie James Dio's voice. I went and investigated Black Sabbath and I bought albums such as Heaven and Hell, The Mob Rules, uh, later on Dehumanizer, and then I got into Dio. I remember buying Holy Diver. Uh, I love the album Magica. And my friend Kevin and I, who 
Kevin, who was featured on this podcast a couple of times, we used to watch the Dio Live DVD, Evil or Divine Live in New York City, uh, frequently, uh, especially when we were pre-drinking um, before heading out in the evening. Or sometimes that would just be the whole event in itself, just watch a heavy metal DVD or two and sit in for the evening and have a few cans. And Ronnie James Dio's music has meant so much to me as a fan of heavy metal. After I got into Black Sabbath and Dio, I then got into Rainbow and just realised the wealth of the material that Dio has produced since, well, I don't know, I'm not a fan of Elf, I've never really listened to them, but from the early days of Rainbow in 1975, right up until his death in 2010, uh, the Heaven and Hell album, The Devil You Know, was released in 2009, he was at the forefront of heavy metal and he has one of the most powerful and instantly recognisable voices in metal and here are my guests' thoughts on the passing of Ronnie James Dio, which happened on the 16th of May, 2010. And of course I heard in, in 2010 when Dio passed away and I was just devastated, you know. Uh, it was it was heartbreaking to, to learn that he had passed. Uh, um, but I think it was just a few months, right? Like he was diagnosed probably at the end of 2019 and then he died, yeah, what was it? Like May 2020, 2010, yeah. So it was only a few months I do remember it being like a big, it wasn't a big blow personally to me because I wasn't as connected to his material at that time. Um, but yeah, I, that recently happened to me with Chris Cornell. Like uh, when he died, I was like, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, grunge guy, suicide. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I didn't revisit the catalog, but then I I came back to him. Like I was basically just getting teared up by it. I'm just like the power and the voice and that we lost that, that sucks. Same thing with Dio. I think it's fascinating, right? He, he is obviously a very intelligent person, um, very well spoken, um, and uh, he he has. Uh, I I think he has very clear in his mind what uh, what he's about, and uh, he doesn't sell himself short. You know, he he was very aware of of his talent and uh, of his values. So um, I know that a lot of people, um, a lot of people talk very well, you know, uh, of him, uh, the way he treated fans and the way he treated people, how they made them feel special uh, and all that. But um, by his own admission, he was also a very opinionated man. And I'm, I'm sure he wasn't easy to deal with, especially when it came to, you know, um, uh, creating and and you know probably defending what he thought was was right artistically for him and all that um so yeah i can totally see why uh you know there would be conflicts in the bands that that he was in right how he would clash with uh, richie blackmore or uh with tony Iommi and Geezer butler um as they said you know probably billy ward and, and ozzy osbourne were in that involved in the in the creative process and so they had free you know leeway uh when it came to you know writing the songs of the band when Dio came in I mean that wasn't going to happen I mean he was going to have his say so um so yeah I was devastated I mean he you know it's like a um a light goes out right I mean because not only was he an amazing singer and songwriter but he just like I said he just had a presence about him and just, I thought he was a very positive guy and he did so much for the genre and he just, it's a, it's a great loss to have him gone. It's a, it's a loss to have his, his voice silenced. And it's just, it's just, it's a terrible, it's a terrible, it's a terrible loss. I think it's a terrible loss. I think it's very sad. All right. And with those 
sentiments from Melissa. That's going to do it for this episode of Arc Sabbath, episode 3.0. I hope you will join me next time when we will look at the next phase in the history of Black Sabbath where Ian Gillen from Deep Purple joins Black Sabbath. And that brings us into the mid-80s and late-80s and into the early-90s when the lineups get so bloody difficult to decipher between the members of the band that very few people on the face of this planet could actually tell you who played bass on the album Tear. But I'll tell you one person who can, Joe Sigler. Um, And I apologise for the small amount of content that Joe featured on in this episode. I did promise that all six people from the Ark would feature, and they did, but there'll be a lot more from Joe in later episodes. The problem is with the stuff that I discussed with Joe is that it's really interesting and great quality stuff. It just doesn't fit into the narrative we've had so far, but it will fit in before the Ark is finished. I'm going to use those clips in future episodes when they are relevant, uh, but not before then. So, uh, I'm going to leave us with the song that I discussed with several of my guests it's called Die Young Ronnie James Dio was 67 years old when he died and by today's standards that almost seems young M- musicians continue into their 70s and um, in some cases their 80s and Ronnie James Dio was certainly young at heart when he died as well so here's to you Ronnie and thank you again for all of the music this is Die Young Die <laughs> Young 